What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 28 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to the episode today. In today's episode, we're speaking with Distinguished Professor Emeritus Vivian Robinson. Vivian is the Academic Director of the Centre for Educational Leadership within the Faculty of Education at the University of Auckland and has a long and illustrious career in education. Vivian specialises in school improvement, leadership and the relationship between research and the improvement of practice. She is the author of five books and numerous chapters and journal articles and has consulted on leadership development and research to government agencies and organisations in England, Singapore, Chile, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Vivian has received awards from national and international professional organisations, including the Australian Council for Educational Leaders and the New Zealand Secondary Principals Association. She's a fellow of the American Educational Research Association for Sustained Excellence in Educational Research and has also been appointed by the New Zealand Minister of Education as an expert advisor on the OECD Conference on the Education Profession. And I'm excited to share that in this ERRR episode, we are discussing Vivian's wonderful book, Reduce Change to Increase Improvement. If I had to sum up this podcast in one word, it would be wisdom. Vivian shares such a depth of experience from her many years of education and her engagement approach cuts to the heart of effective school improvement and indeed effective improvement in any sphere more than perhaps any approach I've come across to date. There is a great depth to this discussion during which Vivian and I begin with broad principles and frameworks and drill down to the level of detail of conversations exploring what it really takes to effectively lead improvement within schools. And in a first for the ERRR podcast, we even did a few role plays in order to see Vivian's engagement approach in action. I'm so grateful to have come across Vivian's work because it's opened me up to a new vocabulary and a new way of thinking about change management that I know will stay with me for life and that will help me to have a more positive and sustainable impact on the schools and institutions in which I work from now on. And I hope that after you've finished listening to this discussion with Vivian, you feel the same way too. Before we jump into this recording, just a reminder about my regular mailing list that collates resources and articles from around the world and delivers them straight to your inbox. Also, this month I did a little test. Just for interest, I did a bit of time tracking over the past four weeks to work out how long I've been spending on the ERRR. And it turns out that, on average, over the past four weeks, I have been spending seven hours, 15 minutes and 15 seconds working on this podcast each week. So if you do really value all of the reading, reviewing, organizing, interviewing, emailing, editing, and distribution that goes on behind the scenes to help bring this learning to your ears, I'd really appreciate it if you could go to patreon.com forward slash ERR or follow the link from my website and sign up to make a monthly donation of a few dollars to help with the ongoing production of the show. If you could say thank you by making an ongoing donation each month, I would be very grateful. Thanks for considering supporting the show, listeners. And now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 28 of the ERRR podcast with Vivian Robinson. 
right, well, distinguished Professor Emeritus Vivian Robinson, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Good to be here, Oliver. All right, the first question we always ask, Vivian, is if you're at a party and someone asks, hi, Vivian, what is it that you do? What is your answer? Well, I'm a leadership researcher and developer, and I love that combination of research and development because that's been a theme of my whole career, how to do research that connects with and improves practice. So the, what I'm doing at the moment is I'm running my own consultancy business with a few very dear and special clients, mostly in Victoria, with the Victorian Government of Department of Education and Training. And then I have clients in New Zealand and in Scandinavia as well. So that work is about building the capability of principal leaders and system leaders, We're doing quite a lot of work with bosses of principals, to put it that way, and their more senior level system leaders. I'm also continuing to supervise doctoral students who are doing research on leadership capabilities, particularly on their ability to build trust with others. Mm. And I call that program the work that we have, which is both a research program and a development program, open to learning leadership. Open to learning leadership. Great. Um, could you give us a brief history of your career to date? Well, my career is one where I came from a family of teachers. My father was a principal in primary school. My mother was a secondary school teacher. They didn't want their children to be teachers in the compulsory sector, and indeed I haven't been. I became an organisational psychologist, did a bit of work in social work and organisational psychology in what was known as mental hospitals at the time, and then I went into education from that organisational psych background. And I've been in the tertiary sector ever since, doing research and teaching graduate students, which have nearly always been educational leaders. And that's, as I said, that's been the theme of my career has been how to bring practice and research together. It seems like I've succeeded. Fantastic. Now, the book we're discussing today is your book entitled Reduce Change, to increase improvement. I was wondering about how, well, why did you feel this book was needed in the current educational landscape? Well, for the reasons that actually are uh, captured in the title, that there, are, as I work with schools and school leaders, I see a lot of burnout, a lot of stress, a lot of frustration and cynicism about repeated cycles of reform or innovation or initiatives that are a huge amount of work for teachers and leaders and that do not deliver the intended improvement. So that was the problem I was addressing and I thought I had could make a contribution to the solution to that problem by talking about why so much change did not lead improvement. And, and that's the critical part and the constructive part was how to, how to lead change in ways that does deliver improvement. Great. Now, the book is really centered around one key idea, at least my reading of it anyway, and that was the distinction between a bypass or an engagement approach to leadership or change management. Could you, for our listeners, kind of give a bit of a description of what you meant by bypass versus engagement? Yes. Um, when you a leader wants a teacher or a team of teachers or the whole school, it doesn't matter or it could be a policymaker thinking about the teaching of writing and how to improve various forms of literacy. 
every time they drive the change process of their future agenda, what it is they wish that teachers or principals would be doing, every time they drive the improvement process of their own agenda, they are bypassing. Bypass means that you have not inquired into the theory of action that drives the practices you want to change or improve. So if you cannot map the beliefs and values and practices that are producing the poor literacy results, whether it's across the state, across the school, or for a single teacher, and have that teacher and practitioners confirm that you have accurately understood the implicit theories that drive their practice, then you are in bypass mode. And one of the things I want to stress is that engagement is not consultation. People do bypass and consult all the time. Mm. They're consulting about their alternative theory. They're consulting about how do you feel about my alternative practice. You know, we're developing a new literacy set of literacy strategies statewide. We've had focus groups. We've talked to teachers and they think they're wonderful. And so we've done heaps of consultation. If you can't map the practices that have produced the results that everybody's disappointed with, then you're in bypass mode. And so what's engagement? Engagement is when you do that. You engage the theory of action that drives the practices you want to improve. That means it's revealed, it's discussed, it's evaluated, and everybody knows what it is that they have done or not done collectively that produces those results. So, I mean, for me in reading this book, it was really a revelation and it was really kind of a threshold concept. I saw this kind of bypass versus engagement distinction. And you gave me some language to talk about some things which I've seen time and time again within schools and in other places as well. I was just yeah. wondering, for you, what was the kind of catalyst for, for coming up with this framework? Could you paint a picture for us? Where were you? How did you come up with it? Well, I don't know. I was reading a wonderful piece of research on innovation and and these ideas that sound like the innovations or inspirations do not pop up out of the blue at all. It's an evolution out of 40 years of thinking about theories of action. And then applying those, building those ideas, building a conceptual and theoretical platform, which provides a lens mm. from which I then see what is going wrong with the attempt to reform schools, with what's going wrong with innovation, why people are so overwhelmed with constant change that is not, not improving things in a sustained and scalable manner. So there wasn't a catalyst. There was a, a context, both my own context of conceptual development over 40 years and the constant working with practitioners, and then the crystallizing of the fact that bringing together the problem with potential solution that I've talked about in the book. 
Okay, more of an evolution rather than a revolution. Yes. And I really like how you frame it. They're using the theoretical framework as a lens to examine what's happening within these yes. organizations. That's that's really beautiful. Yeah. Now, if the main idea is really this bypass versus engage, the metric you encourage us to kind of look at at the end of things is student learning or having learners at the center. Yeah. To, to what extent do you think that current education, and you know, you can contrast Victoria and New Zealand here if you like, but to what extent do you think we're doing the right thing or we are actually having student learning at the center at present? Well, certainly in Victoria with the FISO's improvement framework and lots of other frameworks, plus the constant examination of various data sets, that student learning is at the center of the effort and the intent of every educational leader I meet. Obviously, there are points in terms of particular decisions around staffing stuff. For example, staffing allocation, whether or not a leader is going to deal with a performance problem, where being adult-centered rather than student-centered creeps in. In New Zealand, I think we are considerably further behind in that we, for example, we have a review of our governance structures and, and a whole lot of aspects of of our current schooling system, which is a radical self-managing school system mm. called Tomorrow's Schools. Now, that review and the conversation that is starting around that review, New Zealand's trajectory of student achievement, which is declining and very inequitable and has been historically for 20, 25 years. The decline is more recent. That should be at the centre of the debate, but it's not. In fact, it's hardly foregrounded at all. The debate is turned into a debate about what's good for the adults. It's turned into a debate about how much autonomy they need in their governance how much should be centralised, how much should be decentralised. And those are important debates, but they're not linked to what implications of those debates for the problem we have around student outcomes in this country. So the political risks that are being managed within this debate are risks about powerful schools and school leaders being objecting to resisting the changes, I'm not going to call them improvements yet, Mm. the changes that are being promoted in terms of what it's going to do for teacher autonomy, school autonomy, schools being able to adapt to their context, some schools are unique, da-da-da. There's very little discussion about what our 25 years of the current Tomorrow Schools model has done for student outcomes. Mm. Mm. So that's just one example of where I'm thinking that in New Zealand, we have a way to go about making student outcomes front and centre. That makes a lot of sense. I'm keen to come back to this kind of idea of bypass because in the book you, you sketch out a few scenarios where a promising kind of intervention and, you know, you talked about National Mathematics Initiative in New Zealand, which held quite a bit of promise, and you also talked about one principal, Daryl, who was trying to implement spelling programs at his school. Yeah. He was a Victorian principal. Oh, was he? Okay, Victorian. Yeah. You talked about how a bypass approach actually undermined these initiatives. So I was wondering if for for listeners, you could talk about either of these examples or another one to kind of add a bit of detail to how a bypass approach can kind of really undermine 
in a practical way a positive change initiative? Okay, here's an example. A leader, a school or a system leader, doesn't matter, is concerned about inequity of, of results across different social groups. They're also very aware of the research that says that one of the major contributors to inequity of outcomes in student achievement is ability grouping. And so a program is designed to shift grouping practices from ability grouping to mixed ability grouping. The mixed ability grouping, if done well, provides students with opportunities to learn rich tasks and complex problem solving, which they do not. If they're in the bottom group, they might never, ever even be exposed to that material. So the resource material, the professional development training might be really excellent in itself, and you can predict that it will have very patchy take-up. And the reason for the patchy take-up will be that there are very strong and rational beliefs on the part of teachers and leaders and parents in some cases about why ability grouping is a good thing and why it works. Mm -hmm. But these programs do not uncover, do not inquire into and debate with the people involved the consequences of their belief system. Do not do that in a highly respectful and constructive way so that teachers have the ability to link the outcome that they do not wish for, which is highly inequitable outcomes from their own teaching, to the practices that they believe are so central to the organization of student grouping. Mm. So because that is not a part of a program, then teachers will not take, if there's a strong tension between their beliefs about how to teach and what the reform program is advocating, then they will not take it up. And hence the patchy take up. Where teachers already are open to that thinking, they will take it up. But you will, that will produce the the typical outcome of bypass reform, which is patchy take-up. Okay. That's a good way to frame it, patchy take-up. That's a typical outcome of bypass reform. Okay, so we've started with motivations. We've, we've, we've learned about the big idea of bypass and engagement. We've talked about students at the center. We've talked about what happens when we do bypass, what often happens in that patchy take-up. In the book, you provide a kind of a four-phase approach to actual theory engagement, the, the way that you suggest we should be leading change. And the first phase, phase one, is agree on the problem to be solved. And I wanted to dive into this a little bit because you, you provide one kind of tool to do this, to inquire, and that tool is constructive problem talk. And you describe it as follows. Describing what is perceived to be problematic and the grounds on which that judgment is based and doing so in a way that invites rather than shuts down any differing views. And you add that. Leaders who engage in constructive problem talk position themselves as part of the problem as well as part of the solution. So to many leaders or middle leaders, and, and my, you know, myself included, starting such conversations can be really tricky and something we haven't mastered as yet. And with this in mind and with the knowledge that we were going to have the chance to have a chat today, I sent, put a bit of a call out on yes, Twitter I saw that. Yeah, yeah. to ask 
school leaders or middle leaders, if they had any scenarios where they'd like to conduct some constructive problem talk, and you know this is for the benefit of the listeners as well, but they're not quite sure how to start the conversation or they've tried to have these conversations in a past scenario, but it hasn't gone that well. So I just had kind of three scenarios and I was keen for your thoughts on how you could start a conversation in these scenarios. So the first scenario is from an assistant principal and this AP says to us, this is their scenario. When building and implementing our instructional model last year, we were focusing on the use of a start activity, basically Doug Lemov's do now. The focus was on using the first five minutes of class really productively for recap or priming of new content. We introduced this to teachers in weekly PD, exploring the benefits, then supported its implementation with our coaching framework. And despite this, several teachers refused to start their lesson with starter activities. So this assistant principal is now in the situation where he, he wants to approach these teachers who, who don't want to use a starter activity and try to have a bit of constructive problem talk with them. So how would you start such a conversation in this scenario? I would start with building on the perceived refusal and just naming it and saying, so, okay, Oliver, it seems like you've got some real doubts about using this do now uh, strategy. Am I right in that perception? Yes, that's correct. Okay, what I want you to do, Oliver, is talk to me about what it is about the do now that you have difficulty with. Okay, so we're role-playing now. That's good. We can, we can go with this. You know, I just don't, like, there's other ways I like to start my class, like, and I think that I'm um, starting with a do now, which is quite a rigid approach, really. Um, by the way, I actually really like do nows, but I'm role-playing here. Um, you're starting with a do now, you know, it ruins the relaxed start of, of my lessons. And why is, what do you mean by a relaxed start? Oh, you know, the students come in, I usually have a chat with them about how their weekend went and that kind of a thing. But if we do a do now, they come in, they have to be silent. They have to, you know, answer a question straight away. So I don't get a lot of that interaction that I'd like to usually get. Okay. So you want to have that social interaction, if I can call it that, have a relaxed start. How long does that go on for? Oh, usually the first few minutes as students kind of trickle in, um, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So everyone's settled what, in about 10 minutes or? Yeah. Thinking about the last ones trickling in and settling down. Yeah, yeah, hopefully quicker than that, hopefully within, you know, three, four, five minutes, yeah. But you're not quite sure? Yeah, it's it's something around that. Okay. Because one of the things that I am concerned about is that students' time is precious. And the more that time is eroded, the less opportunities they have to learn the important stuff that you're trying to teach them. Your relationship with the students is also precious, no mm-hmm. question. So what I want us to talk about is how you can do both without losing up to 10 minutes of the class time. Is that worth investigating? Yeah, yep, that makes sense. Okay, and and then from there you kind of, yeah, we've gone beyond naming the problem, but okay. you know, I've integrated your concerns with my concerns. I've I've done a wee bit of giving the grounds for my concern. I didn't know whether I'd observed your class or not, so I didn't say, well, actually, I've noticed your class, and that it, you know, it's typically yes. ten minutes, you know. But it's interesting. What did you notice about my response to you? You were doing a lot of reflecting 
back of what I was saying to me and trying to meld that with, you were trying to get to the core of what I was saying, strip yeah. back the, you know, the words and get to, to use your language, the belief that's driving the actions. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I was going into your beliefs box. Mm. So in the actions box, I see doesn't implement the do now. Mm. So in the actions box, you can have non-actions. Okay. Mm. Things that I would like to see in your classroom, but I don't. So that goes, that's a non-action, doesn't use the do now. And I've now understood why you don't. Mm. I've understood it. And, and, and it's taken two minutes. Yeah, that was, that was very efficient. <laughs> Straight to the police. All right. Well, I'm keen to do a couple more because I'm keen to yep. kind of observe a bit of a pattern. And for each yep. of our listeners, this is very exciting because it's the first role playing so thanks, Vivian, for, for being open to that. Um, all right, here's the next one. This comes from a, a leading teacher. I'm the lead teacher in a team where I have a teacher who is a few years older than me, has a few more years' experience, but it has a very laissez-faire attitude to work. Discussions with my principal and concerns raised by her over this teacher's behavior led us to the point where we had to have a discussion about this teacher's professional conduct. One of the main points was that they weren't showing up to work, class, and meetings on time. How would you start such a conversation? Okay, so you're asking how would you start, how would I start that conversation, mm. and what I'm doing is I'm modeling constructive problem talk, Yeah, that'd be great. Which is part of agree on the problem to be solved. Yeah, phase one, that's right. Okay, phase one of engage. So I would start like this. Oliver, I've noticed that you sometimes don't arrive on time for meetings and class, and I've noticed this over the last few weeks actually is this a fair observation yeah i mean sometimes you know i've got other things to do and i mean i've been doing it for the last 20 years and it doesn't seem to be a problem yes okay well i need to you know be really frank with you now for me it is a problem and i'd like to tell you why it's a problem and get your reaction okay where do we go from here? Are we, are we, keep, keep, are we keeping going? You yeah, want me to keep going? I don't know. Because if I was in your position right now, I wouldn't know where to go from, from where you are. Okay. Well, out of role, if I'm going to disclose that I've got a problem with your being late, mm -hmm. okay, and you've said it hasn't been a problem, and I can imagine you've been in a school co teacher culture where thing, it has been late, say, for you, mm -hmm. not only you, but other people, mm. then I accept that, and the onus is on me to say, why it's a problem for me. Mm. So let me say why it's a problem for me. We're all time poor. And when we have agreements about when meetings start, I think we take collective response. I want us to take collective responsibility for respecting those agreements. And you have unilaterally decided that you can work on a different schedule. Okay. Now you may have on occasion good reason for that, but you need to come to the group with whom we have this agreement and renegotiate rather than unilaterally deciding that you're going to work differently. Mm. So that would be my reason. Okay. So you see, you've indicated that your reason, if I'm correct, Oliver, was because no, you'd done it for ages and nobody had called you on it before. Is that right? Yeah, or I don't think it has a negative effect. Like, you know, the first five yeah. minutes of the meeting are a waste of time anyway or whatever, yes. you know. Okay. Well, 
well, if you come to the group and say, yep, I have been late. And the reason why is because I think the first five minutes has been a waste of time. We then as a group have a responsibility to say, well, is Ollie right? Mm-hmm. Are we wasting the first five minutes? Are we getting straight into it? Yeah, that's a really good point. And there you've just stripped back to actually what my belief and then you've addressed yeah. it and you've been actually been open to the, the point that my critique of the situation is accurate yes. and justified. Yep. Yes. Okay. Or could be justified. Yeah, could be. Know. Yes, that's a better could way to put be it. Justified. Yeah, yeah. Could be justified. That's powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was another element of the dynamic in this scenario, number two, which was that the person kind of giving the feedback or initiating the conversation was a less experienced teacher and perhaps it didn't quite have the respect of the more experienced teacher. Are there any things that you have seen young leaders in schools do that have enabled them to kind of break down that barrier or kind of get through to the more experienced and perhaps more resistant teachers? Yes, we have lots of role plays in our workshops on open to learning leadership, which is the interpersonal, relational Mm. quality that sits under engage. Mm -hmm. We're using an open learning framework, which is a particular framework of how do you relate to people in these conversations okay. to, to, to get into engage. So the way I help young leaders who attribute power to others is to become more skilled. So we coach them and how do you have these conversations? They're actually no different whether the person is powerful or not. What is different is the beliefs in the young leader's head about mm. what's going to happen. Okay. That's the only thing that's different. The skills are exactly the same. And one of the ways that the young leaders gain credibility with older leaders is through being highly direct, respectful, and capable. Now, you may be, if you're in an incredibly toxic situation, you may get whacked over the head, but you need to test whether or not that leader is open. Okay. And if you don't, if you just attribute defensiveness or power or oppression to them without testing it, then you're part of the problem. You're colluding. You're being controlled by that. That's very interesting. It reminds me of some stuff Russell Bishop, who's I'm sure you're yeah. aware of, a uh, professor from New Zealand, was talk, talks about in terms of deficit theorizing, whether it be about yourself or about the other person. That, that, that's yeah. very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. All right, so one more scenario. This is from a head of department. I run a large department in a public high school and we need to ensure the delivery of a guaranteed and viable curriculum, which is a phrase I'm sure you've heard being here in Victoria. Uh, To do this, we need all teachers to record their lessons in the form of lesson plans, then ensure that we're all teaching from the same plan so that students in different classes don't get widely different experiences. But I work with a team of experienced teachers who have had autonomy for a long time and I feel they'll think that writing these plans is a waste of time and teaching from the same plans is constricting. How should I start a conversation with them about this? Ollie, we discussed recently as a department moving to more formal lesson plans. And my sense is that you've got some problems with this. I think you think that it's a waste of time and that it's also constricting. Am I right? Yep, that's correct. Okay. I'd like you to talk to me a bit more about that, about this waste of time and constricting. What do you think is wrong with this proposal? Well, I mean, it's I know how to teach my classes and I've been teaching, you know, this maths class for five years and I've never used lesson plans before and mm. my students yeah. learn well and they do a really good job. 
So I don't see why I have to now start writing lesson plans, which is going to take me extra time. Right. So for you, it's something that you haven't done for ages, and yet you think your teaching's been good and your students have achieved well, and this feels like extra. How much extra time? Is it a lot or minimal? Or I mean, you haven't really given us an explanation of exactly what the lesson plans have to look like yet, but yeah. whatever they are, they're going to take me extra time. Yes, well, depending on how we do it, Ollie, they might. But can I just ask you, because I don't want to repeat myself, what do you understand the reasons for us wanting to do this to be? Well, to be blunt, I expect at some point, you know, the school's been reviewed and we've been told that we need to have a guaranteed and viable curriculum and we need to show evidence for that and having a set of lesson plans is a way to tick that box to show that we're doing it. Okay. So for me to be blunt in turn, the reasons that you've got in your head about why these more formal lesson plans are needed are sort of bureaucratic compliance reasons. Yep. Okay. Well, I'd resist that too if that was the only reason I had in my head. So I don't think we've done a good job of discussing the educational reasons for doing this. Okay. So how do you feel about we we just get that out on the table? Because I don't want to do this either if this is just bureaucratic compliance. Okay. Yep, that sounds good. Thank you. Cool. And then we then we move into the, the following phases. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I have a quote from your book that I think kind of captures Ellie, can I just can I just come back? Yeah. I mean you haven't yet agreed that your you see, the problem has shifted. Mm-hmm. The problem was originally framed as you don't want to do these lesson plans. And what I'm doing is I'm saying the problem is, the shared problem is now, we have a shared problem, mm-hmm. which is that you don't have, or maybe have not been given, good educational reasons for doing them. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to force you to agree you ought to do them. Yep. Without you having good educational reasons. That's why I made the shift I made. Yep. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Now, and this is a question I had tabled for later, but I think it probably fits pretty well here. What if we have a discussion about the educational merits of, of writing lesson plans and we do not come to a shared understanding of whether or not they are worthwhile? You know, you, you believe they are worthwhile and I, as a teacher of 20 years experience, just say, have never used them and you just can't seem to convince me or our dialogue does not produce a shared understanding about the value. But there is actually kind of bureaucratic requirement for something like this to be prepared. What happens then? Well, rather than talk about what happens then, I'm going to talk about how that outcome is typically the result of a failure of imagination and of skill. And by that I mean that if you think about doing formal lesson plans, don't want to do formal lesson plans, that's an opposition. We have created in our conversation a polar opposition. We do that in education all the time. If you think about lesson plans, there are a thousand different ways of doing them. Mm -hmm. Some of them will take a heap of time. Some of them will be completely useless. And some of them will take so there's a fair infinite number of ways of doing them with an infinite number of implications in terms of your time. Yes. And similarly, in terms of the worthwhileness of those lesson plans, in mm. terms of 
shared understanding in terms of I would go down the track of, okay, if you trust this process, you will be planning about half the amount of your lessons because you will be using the planning of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. So your time spent lesson planning will be reduced, not increased. Mm -hmm. Initially, while you are working with your colleagues to develop shared units of work, yeah, maybe a bit more time. We need to manage that with appropriate resources. But you see, what my job is as a leader is to engage you in the detail mm -hmm. okay. of what these lesson plans will look like. And once you do, and to get you out of the oppositions, because yeah. if you're in an, a polar opposite conversation, you've actually eliminated the possibilities for resolution. Okay, that's really good. So you add oppositions and engage in details. And that actually reminds me of a very similar conversation I had with a colleague last year. We were doing some planning together. Yeah. There were three of us teaching the same class. And I said, um, how would you feel about each week? I, I already had lesson plans. I draft the lesson plan. I send it to you guys. You guys review it. And then we kind of move forward. Yeah. And he was just like, he didn't reply to my email. And then we, I, I got to school and I was like, you, did you get my email? Blah, blah. And he was like, yep, can't do that. No, there's no way. You know, one of the main reasons I'm a teacher is because I have autonomy and I get to teach how I like to teach, and this yeah. is the thing I love about the job. And then I was like, whoa, okay. And then I said, I think we need to discuss about what I mean when I say lesson plans. And yes. then we talked about just like a shared, rough shared understanding of how we're going to teach yeah. the threshold concepts in the. And then yeah. when we actually broke it down, like you said, and engaged in the details, we actually realized that, oh, we both thought that, that was a good idea, and we both kind of came to meet in the middle. So, thank, yeah, you've, you've done a great job of, of bring, bringing yes, that out. Yes, and that's why I said it's a failure of imagination to mm. keep talking in polarities because you're not imagining the, well, and your great question, which was, well, what do you think I mean by lesson plans mm. and let me outline it and you get into the detail and, and then you start seeing all sorts of possibilities for integration. Mm. Yep, and there was a fantastic quote from your book that I think captures what we've been talking about really well, and that is, the process is reciprocal in that the change leader's alternative theory must also be explicit and open to revision, especially at those points where there is a tension between it and the current theories of action. Theory engagement is, in essence, a process of theory competition in which the relative merits of existing and proposed theories of action are debated. Yeah, yeah. Right, so that was constructive problem talk. You contrast that against defensive problem talk and you do offer a scenario in the book and the scenario is a new leader, never been a principal before, who has been in the job for a few weeks, has gone in, mentioned his previous site many times, is not listening to the staff and is making changes that aren't going well as a result. Then you talk about a meeting between this new school leader and a superintendent and the superintendent mm. makes the following comment which is, we spoke about how important it is to come to a new site and just listen and take time to get to know people and just observe. So how's that going? Now, to me, that sounded like a totally fine comment because it kind of alluded to a conversation that they'd previously had before and it kind of was checking in with the principal as to that progress. But your actual critique of that was you said that this question is loaded because it presupposes A, that the principal recalls the conversation and he may not, and B, that the principal has followed the superintendent's advice and he, he may not have. The question is also controlling because it implies that the principal ought to have done those two things and therefore ought to be able to report on this pro on his progress on these two things. So yeah, I just wanted to ask, like, how many things as leaders are we doing or as we're saying that we're unconsciously setting up kind of defensive problem talk 
And are there any mistakes you see? Because to me, that seemed like a totally fine way to approach a conversation. Tell me about it. The principle behind the critique, when you say, so how is it going? Mm -hmm. Now, that's a genuine question when you do not know how it's going. Okay. And you do not have a concern. But if your question is motivated by a concern, which is that you are talking about your previous school and how wonderful it is too often, and that's motivating the question and you haven't disclosed that, then you're asking a leading or a loaded question. Okay. So when you say, so how's it going? You're Mm -hmm. asking the principal to be open Mm -hmm. and the superintendent is hiding the concern that motivates his question. So that's why I'm critical. And we see a whole lot of those sorts of questions with people. One of the major things we do in our workshops is we teach people to make statements about their views rather than hiding their views in their questions and hoping that the other person's going to tell them what they're not prepared to disclose. (laughs) And that is an extremely common pattern. People who have been taught, and some models of coaching teach this, and I'm very critical of this, people who have been taught that they should only ask questions do this a whole lot. Mm. Because, of course, they've got agendas and points of view and thinking, and mistakenly, they think that they can't state them and check them. They quiz and quiz others until they say what's in their head, but they won't say, disclose. Okay, so I mean, you know, this is a formative assessment of me and how well I'm learning what you're trying to what you're trying to communicate to me here. But let me try to yeah. say what the superintendent could have said if following your advice and you tell me if yeah. I've done a good job or not. So yep. to me it seems like the superintendent would do well to say something like, I have received reports that you've been mentioning your previous site a lot of times and that you've not been listening to staff as much as you could have and that your progress of making changes hasn't been progressing as well as it could be. I just wanted to check with you whether those assessments or that those reports I've received are justified. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, what you've done is you've disclosed what you've heard. You've made it clear that it's a report as opposed to the truth. Uh-huh. And, that, and then you've invited the other person's point of view. What I would just tweak there mm-hmm. is that there's a lot of stuff in your disclosure. I've heard these reports that you've been talking a lot about your previous school and this, and then there was a third one. So you might just chunk that a bit more so that it's not quite so much coming at the yep. other person at once. That's good advice. Just chunk it and pause it and say, look, I've had reports that you're still talking quite a lot about your previous school, and that's not upsetting, but, you know, annoying some of your staff Mm. and just pause there okay wow this is um this is scary stuff vivian i've got to say (laughs) stepping from the asking loaded questions to making a statement like that is quite intimidating and i'm sure leaders listening find out the case but it's radical and i guess it's kind of it could be referred to as a radical candor and it's uh scary but also a bit exciting all right so that was phase one agree on the problem to be solved. Phase two is inquire into relevant theory of action. And in the book, really, the most powerful illustration for this came to me through reading about the Basto principle program that you helped to design. So 
As yeah. a bit of background, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an introduction to that program. Yes, FASTO, because this concern was in Victoria about principal health and well-being, FASTO was asked to design a principal well-being program. BASTO, it's the BASTO Institute. Um, BASTO Institute yep. of Educational Leadership, yep. part of the Department of Education and Training, though a bit you know, removed, but mm-hmm. it is part of the department. And then partway through the design, and I don't know what triggered it, they asked me to come and help with the design. And I said yes, and over two days, we completely flipped the design of the program from one where there's lots of wonderful input about well-being and this person's approach to well-being and strategies for improving well-being, et cetera, et cetera, which is a bypass approach. Mm-hmm. In other words, bypassing the principles, practices, and beliefs that might be producing the stress and reducing well-being. And so I, that, so it was a bypass approach and I worked with the design team, which was principals and BASTO designers to flip that into a design where we started out and empowering principals to examine their own practice and to examine ways, despite the contextual pressures, examine ways they were responding to those pressures and to their own internally generated pressure from their sense of vision and values Mm. and uncover the theories of action that had these unintended horrible consequences of stress and ill health, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how we redesigned the program, that the first day of the program, we are not going to give you tips and tricks about well-being. We're going to uncover the ways that you currently think and act that might be contributing to your stress. And mm-hmm. having uncovered that, then you are in a brilliant position to look at that and say, this needs to be reframed, this needs to change. Why do I believe that I need to respond to the department's requests for returns, you know, within 24 hours and mm. stuff like you know. Yeah, and so just to add a bit more detail to that for people, a theory of action you talk about is being comprised of relevant beliefs, subsequent actions, and subsequent consequences. And in this principal program, you had one particular principal that you gave us some detail on, and this was Gary. And Gary was pretty stressed out, and you actually shared his kind of a theory yeah. of action. I won't share the whole thing because it's quite long, but here are some key points. I'm sharing this because I think a lot of people who are listening, especially principals, will probably potentially see some of themselves in this. And I think that's really powerful. So some of the relevant beliefs that Gary held in his current theory of action were, in order to be a good principal in the school, I need to respond personally and immediately to parents. There is a tradition of such responding, and if I break it, I will lose goodwill. I'll be evaluated negatively by my superiors if I'm seen as slow to respond to their requests, and it is selfish to talk about my own needs and stress. So some of his beliefs, which probably a lot of leaders hold. The results of that, his actions were, I spend 30% of my time on administrative tasks, 30% of my time dealing with parents, phone calls and staff issues, such as conflict between staff, about 20% of my time managing student behavior issues, minimal time leading improvement of teaching, and I answer about 30 to 40 emails a day. 
And the consequences are I feel overwhelmed and I'm going around in circles. My sleep is poor. I feel inadequate at the job. I'm not leading teaching and learning and I'm liked, but the outcomes for students have not improved. Coming back to your student learning at the center there. So as a facilitator, how did you help Gary to kind of really reify and construct his theory of action in such a clear way? By doing what I call a theory of action interview. or con- it's, Well, it's actually, it's an interview rather than a conversation because mm-hmm. my job is to listen, paraphrase and summarize and absolutely not evaluate. Mm-hmm. So at this part of engagement, phase two, reveal the theory of action in the practices you want to improve and mm. so that you can address the problem knowing what causes it, then your job is to listen. And so these conversations take six to seven minutes only. Wow. So if you are able to say, okay, those three guiding questions, and, and I teach people how to have these, do these interviews in our workshops. Mm-hmm. So you start in the actions box because that's the concrete behavior. Yep. What do you do? How are you spending your time mm-hmm. in this case? How are you spending your time? And so that's where the rough estimates of the 30, 40, not spending it on teaching and learning, et cetera, come yep. from. Then you've, so you've got something to anchor then, your next set of questions, which is why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Why are you doing that and not doing what you say you want to do, which is leading teaching and learning? Mm-hmm. So you've got to have a clear causal logic, a link between what you're doing and not doing and the beliefs and values that produce that. Yeah. And then the next one is what are the consequences? Well, the consequences were our starting point, which is here's a man who's seriously distressed. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be, again, a a causal link between the actions and non-actions and the consequences. That takes about seven or eight minutes okay and our videos our videos demonstrating that that they're all about that amount of time that's really incredible to get to that level of depth in such a short time yeah and a really great skill to learn well that's quite quick phase two seven minutes inquire into the relevant theory of action well yes but if it's a complex i mean this is one individual the same approach applies to groups of teachers whole schools and whole systems So if I was leading the design of a new literacy strategy, I would start with some very light sampling of how a teacher's currently teaching writing, for example, Mm. so that I could get the actions box filled in. Okay. So phase three is evaluate the merit of current and alternative theories of action. And something that I was really interested in here is you kind of outlined at the start, one of the key things to get in place before you can do any evaluation of current and future theories of action is to define evaluating criteria. So how can we realistically do this? And, you know, for example, in the three scenarios we talked about before, what would be the role of defining evaluative criteria and how would you realistically do that in such conversations? Well, let's go back to the role play we did mm-hmm. where you were the teacher who didn't want to do the formal lesson plans. Yep, great. Okay. So what are the evaluation, so our new theory, if it's going to work, it's got to meet your important and worthwhile needs as well as mine. Uh Now, one of your needs is it's got to be efficient. Yep, time, yep, my time. So we don't know what these lesson plans are going to look like. We don't know how we're going to make, what exactly is going to happen. 
We may end up postponing it, not doing it at all. I don't know. But we are going to, in we're trying to construct a way forward, an alternative theory to nothing and you doing your own thing and everybody else doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. We know that whatever we do, we are searching for some way that's efficient. Mm -hmm. We are also searching for a way that other and of course, the team of teachers agree is going to help their teaching. Yep. Probably a third criteria is it's going to help student learning uh -huh. by being explicit to them. A fourth criteria might be that when we have change of personnel, we have a record uh -huh. and we have a way of quickly inducting relief teachers or new teachers into our team. Yep. So there's four criteria. The fifth criteria is that it satisfies the bureaucrats. Yep. Okay. Now, if we've done the other four, I can guarantee you the bureaucrats will be satisfied. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so you'd just basically say it like that. You'd kind of reframe what I've said and you'd ask yes. me, you'd say, it sounds yes. like these are the things that are important. Therefore, any, as we move yes. forwards, we need to make sure yes. that anything yes. we do satisfies these criteria. Okay. Yes, but it's not just your criteria. It's mine as well. Yes. There are two people in, these, in this yep. conversation. The other thing is, is that if you said to me it's got to be easy, Mm -hmm. I would probably want to say, what do you mean by easy? Do you mean efficient? Yeah. You know, because sometimes people put forward the criteria that are important to them that should not be accepted. Yes. And then you have to have a debate about whether or not that yes. criteria should, yes. has a place. Yes. Okay. One of the kind of key things also in this phase was you talked about withholding or sharing evaluations. And so I'll share some other segments from your book and then see what you – what you have to say about it. so that you said that leaders typically withhold evaluation that is and we, t we did talk about this earlier rather than disclose their evaluation they ask the other person to disclose theirs in the hope that it will be similar to their own even though this strategy involves inquiry into the other's views it's not engagement because engagement requires both parties to have access to each other's thinking yes and then adding to that you said when we ask leaders about the mismatch between their highly evaluative thoughts and their generally non-evaluative talk, we learn that they withheld their evaluations for fear of upsetting or damaging their relationship with their colleagues. We now understood why they felt caught between being honest and preserving their relationships. Their thoughts were so definitive and certain that they left no room for a differing point of view. It certainly would be upsetting, if not downright rude, to communicate them. The key to avoiding the dilemma is not to tone down or withhold the words, but to change the thinking that produces such a judgmental evaluation. How often do you actually see this when we come to the kind of phase of evaluating the relative merit? How often do you see leaders with a natural ability to be able to actually be open to the possibility that they may be wrong? And to what extent have you had a success in teaching people to be open to the possibility that they may be wrong? Well, first of all, when you find out what is in people's heads when they talk, which we call the left-hand column strategy. In other words, reveal reveal what you didn't say. So we know from the speech what they said. We also ask people to say, what were you thinking that led you to say that? And there's a huge mismatch and all mm. that rude stuff has been edited out. So that rude stuff indicates a lack of openness. You know, people are saying in their thoughts, their thoughts are, Oh, another excuse. You're lazy. You've been getting away with this for years. It's about time somebody challenged you. I don't believe a word of what you're saying. That is absolutely standard stuff. 
that we get when we ask people to tell us what's their what's in their thoughts that they haven't disclosed. Mm. So those, of course, are all very close to learning and not open to learning. And the really hard part about learning how to be more open to learning is not learning a few skills and strategies, but it's unlearning that type of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so, but we, in two days, we can make, in a two-day workshop, we can make quite a few shifts in that. The shifts in the speech eventually drive out those, as people become more skilled in their ways of talking respectfully and honestly, their thinking will change. But we also spend a lot of time helping people reframe their thinking. And that's the hard part. Yeah, that makes sense. I have a kind of related question because I think that I always do my best to bring to a conversation the, in my mind the possibility that I might be wrong. But I have also encountered situations in which I try to be really explicit about that, but it seems like the person I'm speaking with is interpreting what I'm saying as a final and definitive judgment on my part that they then have to defend themselves against. Is there any language you can use? And at times I have said things like, I'm not sure about this and I could be wrong, but this is what I've seen. Are there any things like that you encourage people to say to make it really clear in scenarios in which perhaps this kind of sharing hasn't been done before, really clear to the recipient that that's the framework or the belief of the person giving the, the feedback? Well, one way to do it is like what you've done and said, look, I really want to know, I'm really not sure. And if you're saying that, it's probably a good idea to say what specifically you're not sure about Mm -hmm. because it sounds less formulaic. It sounds more genuine and less formulaic. Okay, that's a good point. The other way of doing it is to say, look, I think you've got some doubts about what I'm suggesting. I'd like to hear them and then keep your mouth shut. Okay, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's that's great advice. All right, now we've talked about agreeing on the problem to be solved inquiring to relevant theory of action and evaluating the relative merit of the current and alternative theories of action. And part of evaluating the relative merit of alternative theories of action is to come up with an alternative theory of action. And in this principle program, moving Gary from his previous view to a new one requires a new one. So I wanted to just share the new one that you kind of shared in your book, the new view of uh, theory of action for principles time use, and then ask some questions about that. So the first one well, is... Ollie, when you, yeah. the one that you're sharing yep. that you've got on the figure 6.3, yep. that one is the generalized one. It's not the one about Gary, I don't think. Yeah, that's okay. I thought we could is talk more right? broadly about where we were oh, trying to move move principles. Okay. And, you know, right. they're, they're yep. pretty related. So, so 6.3, yep. so basically where you were trying to help the principles yes. in the program move to... Um, included beliefs and values such as an important part of a principal's job is to develop the leadership capability of others. Leading collaborative improvement in teaching and learning is the core work of the principal and principal's health and well-being must be a high priority as they they can't lead effectively if they are unhealthy. This leads to actions such as reducing the number of staff they directly manage by establishing clearly delegated responsibilities and developing the leadership capabilities of their team and creating time for the leadership of improvement of teaching and learning and giving greater priority to their own health and well-being by accessing and advocating for appropriate forms of support, which leads to the consequences of increased trust of other leaders and sense of teamwork, reduced isolation, faster progress, improved principal health and well-being, and principal role seen as more attractive 
and less stressful. So how, you know, was it a collab- collaborative in the way that you came up with this? And how did you try to move principles towards this? And relatedly to your comment about which figure we're looking at, how do you help an individual or a, an organization to look at where they perhaps could go and combine their own needs with that kind of generalized framework to come up with their own future yes. positive theory of action? Yeah, yes. Well, I think the first thing to remember is that in coming up with an alternative theory of action, people are highly motivated to reduce the negative consequences of their current theory of action, which in this case, is high levels of stress and distress. So that's a highly motivating lever. The second point is by the time they have revealed their current theory of action, which is so taken for granted and buried that they haven't been able to reflect on it, they can Mm. now see it on one page. Mm. And they go, oh, my God. And they can critique their beliefs. They can see the consequences, the horrible consequences of what they have been taken for granted. Mm. So that's really powerful. And sometimes people can do it on their own, just from those okay. if they've had help revealing their current theory. They can see, they can do the critique themselves. In this case, we had the help of a nationwide consultancy report on principal health and well-being. And a Victoria, which was Phil Riley's stuff, which showed how widespread the problem is, although it didn't take a theory of action approach. But in constructing the alternative, we had some comparative data from managers and other sectors done by one of the big consultancy companies who had investigated the time use of school principals across Victoria Mm -hmm. and had shown that they took responsibility for others, attended meetings, did emergency stepping into crises and didn't delegate in ways that were quite distinct from equivalent leaders in business and in other non-profit sectors. So that gave us a set of potential ideas which produced some discussion in which we talked in that which led to the establishing clearly delegated responsibilities. Mm. You know, the rescuing others, the, the, you know, the, the copying machine breaks down, so I'm going to step into the office and do the copying, mm. that sort of thing. And the desire for everybody to report in a large school directly to the principal mm. and the fact that principals think that saying yes to that will embed and cement good relationships with those people. So there's the belief that drives that practice. And so they can begin to say, okay, I've got too many people that are reporting to me. I need less people to report to me. If I do that, I'm going to have to accept or reframe this belief that my relationships are dependent on everyone walking into my office whenever Mm. they feel like it. So, because that's the driver of the constant open door yep. and the streams of people coming to into a principal's office who by the, at the end of the day, at the end of every day is saying, I didn't get to where I need to get to on the important stuff. I've spent the whole day once again on the crisis. Mm. So, we just keep working. So, you're saying, how do we get to the alternative? One, mm-hmm. we're highly motivated. 
because the current theory of action we have agreed is highly problematic, not just for others, but most importantly for themselves. Secondly, we critique, but we have the logic. So we critique the logic and we say, gosh, we have to change the open door thing. And in order to change that, we've got to change our beliefs about having an open door and its connection to relationships. Mm. And the third thing we do is we look externally to, in this case, research on what are practices that produce better outcomes. And here is where the input on well-being, the tips and tricks, the things we need to try to do, like have time for ourselves, have the door shut at certain periods, become helpful. Mm. But if we haven't done the revealing the current theory of action, revealing the fact that the reason for the open door is the belief that that's essential for me having good relationships, then we won't, of course, adopt that strategy mm. because we haven't uncovered the driver that stops us doing it. Yep. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, you, you know, you've highlighted the we're already highly motivated to move beyond it and then we've got frameworks to look at. And in this case, the frameworks are drawn from really wide research and that helped yes, you to kind yes. of consider them. Yes, but I don't want people to think that they have to do a whole lot of wide research yep. in order to create the alternative. If it's a specialist area like subject discipline-specific Literacy, yes, probably yes. Yep. But sometimes people can reframe their theories of action by just critiquing that one-page current theory of action. Yep, and thinking about where they'd like to be. Yes, especially and also especially if they do it with colleagues yep. or, okay. or a peers. That's helpful. Now, phase four is implement and monitor a new sufficiently shared theory of action. And really what I wanted to talk about here was you place a lot of emphasis on on using data and in your recent paper, Joining the Dots from 2017, which was yes. also about school improvement, a fantastic paper. I'll, I'll make sure we link to that in the show notes because it's really excellent for any school leaders to read. In that one, you also talked about kind of a data-driven approach to school leadership or at least the factors that support a successful data-driven approach. But I did want to ask, when you refer to data, what do you mean by data? What kind of data sources do you think are worthwhile for schools to focus on when they're trying to monitor whether or not their strategies are having a positive impact? Well, obviously, the student outcomes is the sort of central piece of data. But it's too long to wait. You're going to wait for a whole year to see whether anything improves much in some cases. That's not going to work. So that's why I talk about implementation indicators. You need indicators of whether or not teachers are making the changes that you have agreed to. And then the outcome indicators, which are the student outcome. Now, if we look at page 16 of my book, which is a theory of action, an alternative theory about the teaching of maths so that comprehension results Maths problem-solving results, maths comprehension, which is really bad, improves. Now, the new theory, the alternative theory, asks teachers to use rich tests instead of simple ones to specifically teach subject-specific literacy, like the vocabulary of the discipline, how to read tables of the discipline, how to read the diagrams and the graphs of the discipline how to decode the, the questions. They ask them to lead extended discussions and to assess them different ways. Now, all of those alternative actions constitute your evidence 
for whether or not it's happening. So you go into a few classrooms, mm. it can be walkthroughs or whatever. Are you seeing a specific teaching of subject-specific literacy? Are you seeing different assessments being used as opposed to quizzes and worksheets? Those are your implementation indicators. Mm. Okay, so data used more broadly and also consciously and carefully considering what will be indicators of the fact that, you know, this initiative has been taken on and how are we going to track that, planning that out at the yes. start? and if you've mapped the alternative theory of action and you do this iteratively, of course, because you learn as you go, then those actions, those alternative actions can be quickly turned into your implementation indicators. So you can evaluate, are mm. people doing what they agreed to do? That's a great link. There's no point looking at outcomes if you've only got half your teachers implementing the new strategy. Mm, definitely. Now, I wanted to talk briefly now about roadblocks. So the first question is, what if this engagement approach doesn't work? Have there been times where you've worked with leaders and had to say, looks like engagement isn't going to work this time, we better go to bypass? It's more likely to be the reverse. It's more likely to be that you start with bypass, bypass doesn't work, and then you go to engagement. Mm. Because, by, and as I said in the book, bypass sometimes doesn't work, does work, sorry. If there is mm. very little tension between the theory of action that drives current practice and the alternative theory of action, then teachers will adapt and adopt your suggestions, strategies, instructions, ideas, whatever. Teachers do that all the time. Mm. So the bypass approach Usually leaders start with that. What I'm saying about engagement is, is that don't go around that circle many times. You've suggested something to a teacher three times. They're still not doing it. That's a cue. Stop bypassing and start engaging, which is talking to them about why they're continuing to do what you don't want them to do. Mm. That's engage. Now, engage sometimes doesn't work because even if you've done it really well, and I've never come across an example of this, but I'm sure there are, even if you've done it really well, there are some problems that are intractable. We don't know enough at the moment. We're using a bad theory. For example, I'm working in a school at the moment, a large primary school. It's turning into a turnaround school situation, which when I first took it on, I didn't realize it would be that. Now, I've engaged all the way through around why over $100,000 of math professional development has made not one jot of difference to the bottom line of kids' maths achievement, not one, over a three-year wow. period. And I have engaged around. And the first thing I said to the school leaders was, I don't want you to spend another dollar on professional development until we understand why the previous 100000 has done made no difference. And I have been unpicking the theories of action around leadership time, team leaders, teachers, facilitators, that has explained why nothing's worked. And the, in short, the answer was, is that the preconditions for anything working, whether it's maths initiatives, reading, student voice in that school were not in place. Okay. Like collective responsibility, accountability, routines that worked, data collection that worked, data use that worked. None of it was in place. 
we still don't have improvement in maths achievement. So you could say engagement there hasn't worked. But it has worked in the sense that all the other things are in place. And what we have learned from that process is that the math program is not valid for the school. Okay. So we're going to now at a point where the school has redesigned the maths intervention. And they're pretty confident 2019 will see a change. So when does engagement not work? When your alternative theory is not a valid theory. Okay. You don't have the research or the problem is simply intractable. Let's say you're working on a problem in a school and the home-based drivers of that problem are so strong that no matter how capable your teachers become, they will not be able to shift student outcomes. Mm. The next question, Vivian, is what if you're stuck in the middle? What if you're a middle leader? And the school leader above you is taking a bypass approach and you're expected to implement these things with your team. How do you deal with that situation? Okay. Yeah, great question. The school leader wants something to be improved. That's why the school leader has delegated to the middle leader to do the job. The middle leader has to test whether or not following the principal's instructions as best as he or she can will work. And he might test that by attempting to do it or just talking quickly to teachers who say, no way. Okay. Mm. And then you go into that conversation with the teachers, the middle leader and the teachers. Tell me why you don't want to do it. What's wrong with the principal's idea? Da, da, da. Then you go back. This is influencing up. You go back to the principal and you say, Mr. Principal, you really want this to improve. Is that right? Yes, says the principal. I want to tell you why I don't think it's going to work the way you want me to do it. Okay? Then you share the info. Yes. Notice what I'm doing again. I am hooking onto the sincere motivation, assuming it is, of that principal to get improvement. So I'm saying to the principal, you are not going to get what you want unless I can modify the approach and I'd like to talk to you about why. Mm. That's powerful. And it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, stepping down one more level, what if you are a classroom teacher with no leadership roles and you are finding that, for example, the middle leader who you're working with or the principal who you're working directly with is taking a bypass approach to you. What advice do you have for someone in that kind of situation? The advice in that situation is you check and you say, you're asking me to do this. I have a reaction and I'd like to talk to you about the reaction, my reaction to that. So you are, they're not, are they taking a bypass approach to you? They're not asking you for your views, your skepticism, your concerns. So then you say, I'd like to tell you what they are. Okay, so you just—it's just about being assertive and yes, yep, and okay. respectful. Yep. And what if there isn't enough time? What if have you ever come across a scenario where a school just has to make a change really fast, and they don't have time to ask everyone all their opinions and for their theories of action, and they just have to get things done? Yes. And let me first of all say though that getting a theory of action doesn't mean you have to ask everyone for their opinions. You can mm-hmm. ask a few 
that you think have different opinions and then just quickly at a staff meeting put up the one-page theory of action and say, I think this is roughly what people think, staff. Does that Mm -hmm. sort of connect with you? And then if you've done a good job of that, they'll say yes, and that's it. You don't need to do – this is not research which you need to take six months to inquire into everyone's views. Absolutely not. Mm. In fact, becoming very skilled at doing this quickly is important. Mm. Now, let's say that it is an emergency, urgent situation. Then you say, sorry, folks, I think that this is urgent. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this. Haven't had time to talk about all the whys and wherefores, but I can assure you we're going to trial this for two months, three months, whatever, and there is going to be a detailed debrief. We're going to iterate on this. And in that detailed debrief, you then do the thing that you couldn't do early on, Mm -hmm. which is inquire into the current practice, into people's beliefs, et cetera. Okay, so there are ways to do it. There are ways to do it quickly. You just reverse the sequence, but you're open about the fact that you're doing a bypass and why. Okay, that's really good. Some interesting additional questions that I kind of came up with whilst reading your book. I was wondering about the implications of your theory for hiring people. So, for example, if as a school leader, I'm aware that to create sustainable change, I need to hire, for example, an assistant principal who's more likely to take an engagement and bypass approach. How in a kind of interview situation do you suggest assessing whether someone is likely to take an engaged approach? Well, quite a few interviews now have behavioral scenarios in them where, you know, people are asked to talk about where they've led usually change, I would say led improvement, but where they've led change. And then what happens is that people talk about it and that tells you what they think they've done. It doesn't tell you what they have done. So if you want to get beyond the espouse theory into the theory in use, the actual what they've done, then you put them in a role play situation and you say, okay, yeah, that sounds great. I'm a teach, I'm a team leader that actually doesn't like what you've suggested. I want you to I'm going to pretend to be the team leader and I want us to have a really quick conversation right now. So you put them in a role play situation on the spot. Mm, okay. That sounds good. Kind of like what we've been doing today. Yeah. Right. The next question is on skill set. So, you know, having the emotional fortitude to carry out this process, I would imagine can be pretty challenging. In your teaching of leaders to date, have you found that some people just really struggle to take this approach because of the way that they're wired? Or am I just being a bit too fixed mindset-y about this? Well, we're all wired to take things for granted and leap to conclusions. That's just a fact. I mean, Daniel Kahneman, the wonderful author of Thinking Fast and Slow, a very prestigious behavioral economist and psychologist, he calls the human brain a jumping-to-conclusions machine. So let's just accept that we're all hardwired to be closed rather than open to learning. And so it is emotional and hard and difficult. The people that struggle the most are the people who already think they know it all, who cannot position themselves as learners. They're the people who struggle the most because they are in that mindset. They're in a performance mindset instead of a learning mindset, Mm. they're the ones that find it hardest. 
All right, the next question I had was about the role of relationships. So to what extent do you feel that relationships act as a foundation for constructive problem talk or inquiries into theories of action? And have you ever been involved in a work environment that was so toxic that it was really, really difficult to use an engagement approach? Well, as you've probably noticed in the book, that the engagement approach is dialogical. So there needs to be in an adequate theory of engagement. An adequate theory of and practice of engagement includes a behavioral account of the sort of relationships that are needed. And I don't see relationships as foundational. I see relationships as integral. That is that they are built during these conversations. Mm. And it's not as if you've got to have a whole lot of relationships where you sort of put money in the bank and then you can draw the money out when you're tackling these issues. You do both at the same time, which is what I think, by the way, is the nature of leadership. So that's why having a behavioral and ethical account of how do you do this work from a relationship point of view is is so central and why we've been role-playing and why there are so many scenarios in the book. So whether or not engagement works in terms of the relationship, once again, is largely dependent on skill and capability. Your responsibility as a leader is to be as capable in terms of the ethic of open to learning leadership as it's possible as you can be. That's why we run workshops on engagement that focus not only on the process, the four-stage process, but on doing it because the doing it is the conversations Mm. and the relationship building. Now, sometimes you will encounter people who are unable to test their views of whether or not you are trustworthy. So let's say you're doing your best to demonstrate trust, you are listening very hard, you have not pushed back on their concerns, you're taking them really seriously, and they still, let's say, walk out or want to close up or don't want to disclose their points of view. I have met one such person. And in those cases, if you're the leader needing to make a decision, you just need to, it's very important you are not controlled by that. Leaders have responsibilities, they have decisions to make. So in those cases, we coach our leaders into the fact that you continue to make the decisions and are very transparent about why and how you're making them, including to the people who don't want to participate and with a constant invitation for them to come back into the process. So that's if you're the leader. If you're not the leader and that making that decision is not within your realm of responsibility, then you may have to just give it away for a time and then have a different conversation perhaps about, instead of talking about the task, you invite a conversation about your relationship with the leader and check whether the leader is as unhappy with the relationship as you are. That Mm. sometimes can be extremely helpful. It requires, of course, a lot of skill. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. So moving from kind of the relationship scale to the system scale, I was wondering if you had any comments about the kind of systems or structures that support this kind of an engagement approach. So 
we can think about systems and structures at the school level. So like, you know, ways that staff are organized or systems and structures more at the, the system level, the educational department level. Yeah. Yes, there are very powerful forces in policy and at the systems level, thinking about department level, that encourage bypass rather than engagement. And one of those is that you've got national targets or statewide or school-wide targets set for improvement in terms of student outcomes, and people are instructed to get them. They are instructed to achieve targets. Now, that is done without inquiring into why the targets so far haven't been achieved. It's done with, as I said, a set of instructions and sometimes accompanied by sanctions. That is a classic mix for creating bypass. So people who have instructions coming down from on high, which don't create spaces for inquiry into the causes of the problems they're supposed to fix, which have sanctions associated with fixing them or not fixing them, those conditions are toxic and because they prevent learning and they encourage bypass. Mm. We are working with uh, very senior educational leaders in Victoria to interrupt that process. And, of course, in many cases, it will come from politicians. You know, the targets are public. The politicians uh, need their senior bureaucrats to achieve the targets. So go and do it. Exciting that you're doing work in Victoria as well. Next question, and related to the kind of systems question, and this was really prompted by reading your fantastic 2017 paper, Joining the Dots. I was wondering if you wanted to share your views about the number of foci or improvement initiatives that a school should be having at any one time. Should a school really just each year focus on one thing and keep that one thing focused? Or can they usually handle up to three or is six too many? Or is there a more fluid way that a school leader can monitor or tell if the number of foci they have is an appropriate number for their school? Yes, well, I like the way you put the last one, a more fluid way, and I'd put fluid and contextual. If you've been trying to improve um, maths outcomes for three years and you haven't succeeded despite lots of resources, then that suggests to me it's an incredibly tough problem in your school. It's probably a complex problem in the sense that there are multiple strands. It's about leadership. It's about accountability. It's about data use. It's not just about math teaching. And so that is something where there should be one focus or at least one main focus because a lot of people have got a huge amount to learn in order to fix that mm. problem. Not just teachers learning how to teach math better, but leaders learning how to support teachers better, middle leaders and senior leaders learning how to establish a culture of teacher collective responsibility and accountability. That's a huge learning agenda. Mm. That's enough. If you have problems that are not quite that complex, you could probably have two. I'd suggest no more than three because these, you can have a goal or a target that says maths or that says reduction of bullying in the school. And it's nearly always more than the reduction of bullying. It's about teacher culture, it's about organizing the teacher duty rosters and other such operational things. Mm. It's about the management of social media in the school. They're multifaceted. Yes. 
Okay, so you're saying even if you do have one or two key foci, you're likely to be engaging many other things anyway, so it's very easy yes. to get it overloaded. Yep. Yes. Okay. This next question, you touched on this earlier when you talked about showing up kind of things in, in the staff room and when you kind of press for time with an engagement approach. But I was really wondering what advice you had to school leaders who want to actively engage with their staff in order to, you know, I don't know, they might be trying to determine the school's values, or they might be trying to determine which improvement initiative to focus on in the year to come. How do you propose a school principal or a department head consults with all their staff when they have lots of people to consult with? Well, there's lots of different ways of doing it and clearly interviewing and talking individually with everyone is a silly idea. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things to do is to think very carefully about the design of meetings and especially large staff meetings. You disclose the problem that you perceive. You quickly check around the room. Do people agree that it's a problem and stick to phase one? We're not into discussions yet about the cause of the problem. Okay. We're just getting agreement as to whether or not folks think this is a problem. You can do that in five minutes. Mm. And even with 60 people in the room, you know, show of hands, how many people think this is a problem? This is not what our vision of our school is. Put mm. your hands up. Okay. Mm. That's established that there is a problem. That's establishing agreement that there's a problem. Five minutes. Then you as design a process. You might then use the next 10, 15 minutes in the staff meeting to design a process for revealing the theory of action and the problem. Okay, this problem involves which actors? It involves teachers and students, this bullying problem, right? So how are we going to find out what the types of bullying are and why it's happening? So who do we need to talk to? Who can do that talking? Who's in the best position to do that talking? Mm. Okay, how long will that, what sort of questions? Come up with a few questions. How are we going to find a representative group of student learners and a group of teachers and then produce a quick report back on that to the next staff meeting in three weeks? Okay. So stick to the first couple of phases. What about a bit later on where you're trying to, for example, phase three, evaluate the relative merit of current and alternative theories of action? How would you conduct that in a school setting? Well, let's say we've got our report on why there is so much bullying happening in the school at the moment. We understand the practices we want to improve. Mm. So we have a one-page theory of action. Okay. Or maybe if there are two very different causal things going on, two very different patterns, we might have two theories of action. Mm -hmm. And that's presented and discussed at the staff meeting. Then you're into the phase three. Then what you're doing is you're listing the evaluation criteria. Okay, folks, if we're going to get a good solution here, what criteria does it need to meet? Mm. What are our success criteria, if you like? Mm -hmm. Well, it needs to be something that the learners themselves have come up with. It needs to be compatible with our digital technology and digital use policies. It needs to get the agreement of the parents. Okay, so we haven't talked about what to do. We've talked at the beginning of that phase about what do we agree are the criteria for mm. a good solution. Mm. Then when we've got those criteria, then we get creative about trying to find a set of strategies usually, not just one, 
that roughly or as far as possible meets those criteria. Mm. Okay. And also, I'm drilling down on this because it's something that I think is, is particularly tricky to do, but would you set, for example, if you had got that report back and you had developed the theory of action, would you? is that something you would send out prior to the meeting to give people time to think about it or do you think it doesn't really matter? They can usually do it in the meeting or... Well, I mean, I think you're quite right. This requires excellent meeting leadership mm. of all the meetings. Mm. And so you need to think carefully about who's got the meeting leadership skills. So if a principal doesn't have those meeting leadership skills, then the principal is authorizing another member of the senior leadership team and supporting that person and leading these meetings. And these meetings might be happening at different levels of the school. So whether or not I would release the report depends on how well it's written. Okay, yep. <laughs> if it's subject to a lot of misinterpretation, misunderstanding, gossip, rumour-mongering, then I wouldn't release it. Yeah. I would have someone clearly speak to a report and then preferably revise it after the discussion and release it in a form that's better. Okay. okay. If people understand the process beforehand and the report is clearly written illustrating that process, then I would release it. But you've got to think about often releasing things in advance that are bad, badly written or that people don't have the sufficient prior understanding of will just take you backwards. Yeah, that's that's really Really good point. And I also like another thing you emphasized in there, which was not jumping from identifying the problem to coming up with the solution, but really just carefully stepping through the phases and, for example, explicitly talking about those evaluation criteria. That's really powerful. Down to the the micro a little bit now, I was wondering about implications of this for the classroom. Have you yourself or have you had people leave your workshops or within your workshops say, wow, this doesn't have implications for just how I work with colleagues or um, subordinates. This actually has implications for how I teach my students. I want to use more of an engage approach than a bypass approach, for example. Yes, great question. One of my doctoral students right now in one of Auckland's largest high schools serving very economically disadvantaged community is doing just this in the context of math. And he has been studying students who are struggling with their work and who cover up the fact that they're struggling and pretend that they get it. You being a math teacher yourself, I don't know whether you come across this Mm -hmm, or not. Pretend that they get it. And he studied. He has talked very skillfully with students about why they pretending that they understand when they don't. And he has, uh, and he has uncovered the reasoning processes that produce this sham, and it is a very well-intentioned sham. Mm. And he has also studied the pedagogical practices of the teacher that unwittingly contribute to this dynamic of the teacher seeing that the students don't understand. Then reteaching the students who still don't understand, who get more and more embarrassed, concerned about the time that they're taking up of the teacher, and then continue to pretend that they have got it when they are telling my student that they clearly haven't got it. And some of them are so far behind, it's just tragic. They are sitting in classes week after week doing stuff they have no idea. Mm. or little idea of what they're doing. 
So that teacher is in classic bypass mode. See a student make a mistake. Don't inquire deeply into the reasoning that produces the mistake and reteach for the right answer. And that makes it worse. But to be fair to the teacher, the reason why they're not inquiring into the student's reasoning is because of a double jeopardy that they're in, which is that the students don't want to be singled out mm. in front of their peers because they've got, they've got notions about being dumb and they've got notions about the fact that they are there because everyone's pretending. They've got notions about how um, I'm the only one who doesn't mm. get it. And the whole thing is private and in people's heads. So he's coming up with some strategies for breaking that dynamic, which is so tragic and so such an appalling waste of both teacher and student's time. Wow, that sounds like a really, really exciting project. When can we expect that PhD out? He's doing his doctorate by publication and he has got one article almost accepted. Mm -hmm. So that will be the first one out and the second one almost. So I'd say in a year's time, you'll be able to see two of the three articles he's going to publish from his thesis. Fantastic. What's his name, Aaron? Peters, P-E-E-T-E-R-S. And you can access him through me. Great. I will schedule an email to myself because that sounds like a really fascinating topic to look into a bit more. It is. And speaking of accessing education research, I was wondering if you could share with us your view on how you think schools who are successful use education research. In your book, you talked about, for example, the What Works Clearinghouse as one resource. But really, in all of your years of experience of working with successful schools and schools that are improving, what have been some of the commonalities about quality evidence use in these types of improving schools? Well, I need to make a confession here, Ollie, that I work with schools that are not improving. Okay. So I have to remind myself that the sample of schools I work in, because of my commitments and because of my research interests, are typically schools that are serving the most disadvantaged communities and that are struggling. So I don't have a lot of evidence about schools that are, but I have worked briefly in a consultancy sense offering professional development to some very, very well-resourced independent schools. And they tend to have more senior staff whose job it is to access research and to make it available through various parts of the professional development program to staff. So they just have more time to access it, to translate it, to incorporate it into material that they then use within various internal professional development programs. So that's, I think, the main difference that I've seen. Like, for example, I have the associate principal, a woman I'm mentoring, and she's moved from perhaps Auckland's wealthiest independent school to a very large state school. She was serving students from a much less well-off community. That was a move she wanted to make. Mm. And she is in charge of professional development. She said that in the independent school she came from, there were three people doing her job. Wow. So that's the major difference is that schools that are well-resourced in terms of staffing have people who can access the research. And even if teachers who are doing graduate study, who are, like yourself, who are accessing research, I mean, does your school give you time 
to make the expertise you've accessed accessible to your colleagues? I send out an email which gets some engagement, but there isn't time made more broadly in staff meetings or anything like that. No. So that's, I think, the major difference. Okay. I mean, for the schools that you do engage with, the ones that really are hopefully at the start of their improvement trajectory, how do you propose to them that they engage with education research? Or is it not really the focus of your approach? I think that's the job of facilitators. There is so much work to do. I occasionally suggest they read something, but not very often because they've got, I mean, you've got 50% of your staff who are not turning in their data on time. That's more important that that I help them fix that and Mm. understand why that's happening than suggesting that they read something. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if I'm using the bypass engage theory, I might give them a copy of my book. Got it. All right, and then really kind of tying it all together, I wanted to go take a step back and ask you, because we've been talking a lot about theories of action. So as a kind of a summary activity, I was wondering if you could summarize your theory of action for basically what we've been talking about today or the the engage versus bypass approach. So just to remind listeners, a theory of action is comprised of um, a set of beliefs, actions, and then the consequences. The big message is that the key to improvement is to study the practices you want to improve. And here's another way of putting it. Do not design the future until you have deeply understood the present. Mm. That's the key message. It's quite paradoxical because people think, I want to be future focused. I don't want to get down and dirty into the problems. I want to talk about the opportunities in the future. Well, that's actually a classic bypass. Mm. How can you possibly design the future if you don't understand what's driving the present? That's the, you know, in, in the big picture, big message. And understanding the present means understanding the theory of action that is driving the practices that you're unhappy with or the consequences that you're unhappy with. So when we say theory of action, people need to say which actions and whose actions Mm. might be contributing to this outcome that we don't like, that we want to improve. Those are the ones that you need to access the theory of action for. So that means doing those three questions. What is happening? What is not happening? That's the actions, the Mm non-actions. Then why is it happening or not happening? Not your speculation of that, but the people whose actions it is telling you why they're doing it. Mm. This is not something you sit down and guess about what's in other people's heads. You ask them. And then what are the consequences? And when you've got that in a logical, succinct form that the other person tells you is accurate, then you have understood the present. That's fantastic. Lovely, fresh way to frame it. All right, we might move into some closing questions, Vivian. So what advice would you give to your first-year teacher and or researcher self? Have more confidence in your dream. I had the right dream, which was to do research that connected with and helped practitioners improve their practice, not in a future generation, 
not 20 years after I'd published something, but while I was doing the research. That was my dream, okay? And at various points in my career, I got derailed from that dream by the pressure of fashionable educational and social science theories Mm. that were completely antithetical to this dream. So that's the advice that I would give myself. And I've written an article called The Practical Promise of Critical Theory. I wrote that quite some time ago, The Practical Promise of Critical Theory. It's published in Education Administration Quarterly. And in that article, I argue that critical theory has no practical promise as articulated at the time and in the versions of it that I was looking at. And yet it took me at least three years to come to that position. And that was the derailment. That's a that's a big call. That's a pretty big call. I have to visit that article and check out what you said. I've got a lot of friends who are pretty into critical theory, so um, very yeah, interesting. And it's a brilliant theory. It's a brilliant theory for critique, but in terms of constructive action in education, in schools, where do you go from there to design the future? And in the life of the research project and action it. Mm. You as researcher actioning it, not standing back and critiquing, mm. but actioning it. Mm. Critical theory doesn't help you with that. Mm. In terms of referring back to your stages, though, for example, inquiring into the relevant theory of action, could critical theory play a role in helping people identify a theory of action? I am known for someone who provides incredibly tough critique. Mm-hmm. But critique is not the same as critical theory, Mm -hmm. as I articulate in that paper. So critique has a huge role to play in this work. Critical theory, like May, I mean, for example, critical theory alerts us and has done a brilliant job of alerting us to equity problems. Yeah, systematic stuff. Yeah. but And social problems of social justice. But when you come to, okay, in the life of this research project, how many of those researchers that are writing like that are also writing about the interventions that they have done to solve the problems that they are concerned about? Mm. That's why I'm saying it has so little practical promise. Okay. That's what I mean. Look forward to reading the article. What's your information diet like? So whose work do you particularly follow? Are there any books that you really, really recommend or anything like that? Well, I need high-level theoretical ideas to build my theoretical repertoire for being able to go into complex school or system problems and bring conceptual resources to bear to try to understand them in ways that are helpful to the people who are caught up in them and that are helpful to their resolution. And so that's the sort of material that I'm looking for. And so theories that remain at such a stratospheric level of abstraction that they never reach the ground are not helpful. Uh The people that I do find helpful, although quite difficult, is a guy called Michael Mumford, and he writes on leadership in an incredibly rigorous way, usually experimental, which is the methodology is not helpful to me, but for some of the 
conceptual ideas are. And he writes in the Leadership Quarterly. So I study his writing and his art journal articles quite a lot. So this is a different type of reading from reading airport books on management or leadership. Yep. And then the other one I've just started to read is on virtues, leadership virtues, because my next book's going to be integrating leadership virtues into leadership capabilities. I've written a bit about and published about leadership capabilities, particularly the third capability of building relational trust. Mm-hmm. Haven't written so much about the second one, which is complex problem solving, and haven't written at all, well, only a little bit, about the first one, which is using educational knowledge. Mm-hmm. And in my next book, I want to talk about those three capabilities linked to a ethical base of virtues. So virtuous leadership, which means uh, solving problems in the right way, not just solving them. And how does one know what the right way is and anchoring that in a notion of virtues. And there's a woman called Siula, C-I-U-L-L-A, and she writes on leadership virtues. So I'm looking at her work at the moment as well. Fantastic. And my next question was, what's next for Vivian Robinson? What are you excited about? But you've given a bit of, a bit of a taste there. Yeah. Is there anything apart from writing about integrating in values with, with other approaches of principles that you, you're really looking forward to? I'm working with another graduate student of mine and we're writing up the as a case the turnaround school that I'm working in. So it's going to be a big example of using bypass engage at multiple levels to understand what was going wrong in this school. Fantastic. And any last calls to action for listeners or things you'd like them to go away and do? Yes, don't design the future until you deeply understand the present. Very succinct. Well, Vivian Robinson, thank you so much for your time yesterday and today. The interview was conducted in two parts because there was just so much great stuff to talk about. We have talked about so much, but really it's just boiled down to this core, what I would call a threshold concept of bypass versus engage. I mean, for me, you providing this language has just been so enriching for me because it's enabled me to see so many of the challenges that I've faced and I've, I've seen other people face in the past and put language to that. And I know it's a concept that I'm going to continue to use for my whole life and whole career to come. And I'm sure that's the case for many listeners as well. So thanks for sharing your wisdom and we really look forward to your future work. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Oliver. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with distinguished Professor Emeritus Vivian Robinson. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you would share it with your friends. I think that this episode is one in particular that even people who have nothing to do with education could find some wisdom and value in. As always, if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the Eat Triple R podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other Eat Triple R episode, please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.